Hi, y'all. Welcome to another episode of the Cannabis Curious Podcast. This time I talked to Laura Fortis of Fortis Consulting. Laura is a market researcher, and in this conversation, we learn more about what is market research, how it applies to cannabis, and how cannabis business owners can use market research to increase their bottom line. If you're interested in seeing the visuals that accompany the conversation, then please head on over to the YouTube link in the show notes. As always, I really appreciate you guys listening, and I hope you have a great day. Okay, and we're live. Hi, everyone. So this is Ashley with Cannabis Curious, and I am here with Laura Fortis tonight. Laura is a market researcher by trade. She's been a market researcher for 20 years and um, started her own consulting company to do market research, Fortis Consulting, seven years ago, and then recently jumped into the cannabis space about two years ago. So we're going to spend tonight hearing more about her journey, and she's also going to show us some data that she's recently pulled together on um, the Michigan market. So Laura, where I always like to start with my guest is just learning about what brought you into cannabis, because I think everyone's journey is fairly unique. So I'd love to learn more about what brought you to market research and then how that's led you into the cannabis industry. Uh, well, you know, it's a good question. I appreciate you having me. Um, unlike some professions, no one grows up saying, hey, when I grow up, I think I want to be in market research. You know, it kind of happens in a serendipitous way. And um, in my case, I've always been someone who's naturally curious, likes to learn about things, likes to learn about how people think and methods of persuasion and what drives purchase behaviors and other consumer behaviors. So um, I went to college, was very um, interested in going to law school, didn't go to law school, but did end up going to um, a master's program at Annenberg School of Communications and Journalism and then started my market research journey back in 1996. So, um, so wow, I've actually been in, you know, in market research significantly over 20 years at this point. Um, my first 15 years, I was working with Fortune 500 companies, you know, through agencies and operations. And there's two parts of market research. There's qualitative research and quantitative research. I was mostly on the qualitative side. And um, what I became known for, ironically, was um, multi-ethnic research. Um, so I, I kind of joke with people that I've never been the target audience for just about anything that I've been doing because I'm, I'm always in some space like uh, health and fitness or wine or charter schools and now cannabis in the last couple of years. So started my own business over seven years ago, moved to Denver um, a little over two years ago and people joked you're in Colorado, you're bound to get into cannabis, to which I laughed because growing up in the 1980s, my my image of cannabis was Cheech and Chong and you're just stoned and unproductive and that's very incongruous with my personality. Nonetheless, within months of moving to Colorado, I found myself <laughs> doing cannabis market research, initially CBD and then um, into cannabis and became um, known for innovative um, bud tender interviews and bud tender focus groups. Um, I also do in-home use tests. Um, I've done some fun in-home use tests with chocolate edibles. Um, an in-home use test is where you uh, we place the product at dispensaries and people go pick up. They can't get them for free, so they gave their 11 cents. 
brought them home. We did the in-home use test over the weekend and then the focus groups on Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, and then what I'm most recently known for is syndicated research looking at the difference between cannabis consumers and the can of curious, which in my case, I define as people who are curious about cannabis, want to learn more, but aren't currently actively using. And statistically, about for about 44% of, of, of people I surveyed in the US fall into that curious category. And these are in legal, rec legal states, some are recuse, some are med use. But interestingly, Michigan is the highest can of curious state at 51%. Really? So, yeah. So, and, and that's juxtaposed with a state like New Jersey, who's, which is at 30% can of curious. And um, so I'm, I'm going to share with you some national data. But one thing to know about market research for, for you and your, um, your listeners is that numbers can be very deceiving. So they need to be put in context. So for instance, if I'm a, if I'm looking at multiple states and I see that 44% um, are kind of curious and I, uh, would it help to share my screen to show you a little bit? Maybe uh, before we get into the data, I'd love to okay. learn more about how you even find the data, how you determine what yeah. you're gonna look at. You know, um, just a little bit more of what is market research and how sure. how do you kind of define your question and then go about researching it? Okay, absolutely. So starting starting back with market research. So there's um, there's two types of market research, and there's primary research and there's secondary research. So when you look at when you hear about like a headset or a um, some, someone that has retail data, that's when they take all the consumer data, your purchase patterns and all that kind of stuff, and they draw conclusions based on it. What I tend to do is what's called um, prime, you know, like the primary research, which is custom research to solve problems and, and find insights. So when I talk to startups, I kind of, uh, take St Stephen Covey's seven habits of successful people you know you kind of begin with the end in mind mm -hmm. and usually the end in mind that people have is they want to increase their revenue you know that's understandably makes sense um, but oftentimes um, when you're doing market research you you do it because you want to either prove uh, you know, a point or a hypothesis, or you're trying to see where you're wrong about a hypothesis. And this can be very hard for startups and especially, um, you know, small businesses because they usually originate with an enthusiasm and a passion for a particular product, especially in the case of weed, you know, you're, you have something that's really um, driving you and igniting a passion in you. The reason it's important to do market research is just because something doesn't exist doesn't mean it should exist or that people are going to want it enough to pay money for it. So, um, I mean, I could, you know, 
there's nothing, not that I know of at least, there's no wasabi flavored <laughs> lip balm. So <laughs> just because it doesn't exist doesn't mean, doesn't mean it's a good idea. So okay. I deal with um, entrepreneurs that have this notion that if they make something, people are going to use it. And you need to make something that the market wants and doesn't already have and that they're willing to pay for. And if you do this and you launch at the right time, you'll have a leg up on the competition, especially if a similar product doesn't exist. But a lot of times businesses don't want to conduct market research because they not only because they figure it's prohibitively expensive, but they don't want to hear bad news about their idea or they don't want to see that someone's already doing it. But just because you don't get the information doesn't mean it's not there. Uh -huh. So. Um, so sometimes I can convince people to do market research and they're like, oh, yeah, I, I have SurveyMonkey and I used their template. I made a survey and I posted it on my so Facebook and social media. And everybody loved it. You know, there's going to be like a total run on wasabi flavored lip balm, according to my survey. Well, usually when you're posting to Facebook, you're kind of preaching to the converted. You're you're asking opinions of people who either already like your product uh, or are friends or family or second cousins twice removed or people you with, you know, that are biased. And then they get so disappointed when, no, when people don't buy what they're selling because they've had all of this reinforcement and quote data that suggests it's a good idea. So while it's a little bit more expensive to use what's called a, a, an online pan, panel or a census representative panel, it can save you from quitting your job and dumping your life savings into something that may not be viable or maybe ahead of its time or maybe just needs some refinement. Um, and so um, another reason to do market research is to understand who your target is. You know, who are the people your brand is trying to reach? What's the problem or unmet need or want that your brand addresses? And I like to have people do exercises. So um, for instance, I might ask a client before we get started, what does life look like for your customer if you don't solve the problem or get the need met or the want filled? Like, what are you offering a solution to? And conversely, what does life look like after they buy your product and their problem is solved or their need or want is addressed? And that's usually a good launching off point um, because we all come with ideas about a particular product or service and um, it's hard to shake that, especially when you have factors influencing what you do. So, um, I, yeah, I, I really recommend it. Obviously, I'm biased, but I also provide ways in which to make it affordable and accessible. And you can do it yourself with relatively little investment, but still get objective market research. Right. Yeah, that's I guess. That's the myth you're helping to dispel right now, right? Is that it can be affordable because that might be what is preventing um, people from considering it in the startup phase because there are a lot of expenses in the startup oh, phase. Oh, yeah. There's all these expenses and marketing and all of its shiny bells and whistles seem like the best place to put it. Or people get caught up on things like 
logos and leases and things that are, um, especially I see logos like kind of distract people from doing the initial research. Um, but it's a worthwhile investment. It can save you a lot of pain and enable you to see potential for your product that might require just a little tweaking to get to what you want. Or you might have a certain target audience that you have in mind. In fact, I can bring yes. an example. Some of your, I don't know if you've seen this, this is CanLock. This is a vacuum sealed jar to hold joints. And it was designed by a guy who wanted to make it for connoisseurs who really care about the, the dampness and preservation of their weed. But when I tested it out with a larger audience, it's parents who don't want their kids to know there's weed in the house that present a much more um, mm. dominant opportunity. But that isn't what it was designed for. Um, same thing with, I tested out uh, a device that was meant to help people who don't have the dexterity to roll their own joints, making it easier to do it and faster. But when I tested it out, it turns out it's people who just smoke a lot of joints and don't want to go through the ritual of doing it all the time that presented it a bigger target audience. And obviously if going into that, if they'd skipped the market research, they would have picked a brand that was more medicinal and skewed older and um, maybe had a, a more uh, sterile feel to it. Yeah. And as a result, their branding and their messaging and their colors and their website course corrected to reflect what their more robust target audience was. It doesn't mean that there are other people that aren't going to buy it. It's just you want to do the one that's going to generate the most like the, revenue. Yeah, the biggest piece of the pie. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's say I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'm interested in having a cannabis lip balm line here in um, Michigan to begin with, and I come to you. What mm -hmm. does the process look like? Okay, well, um, first off, we do some intake about your product, and I, um, and it depends if you're if you've already made the product. I'm gonna, I'm assuming that you're talking about something that's as a concept. Exactly. I'm at the very beginning. I don't even have a logo or anything. I'm like your ideal client. I'm approaching okay. you right yeah. at concept. I'm just uh -huh. trying to get an understanding. What I want to get a sense of is what kind of data are you looking at and mm -hmm. sort of how, how are you kind of researching those questions and then the focus groups that you're doing? Like, what are you pulling in to draw in these consumer insights? Sure. So, Ashley, that's, that's an awesome idea. I think that a a cannabis-based uh, lip balm sounds like kind of a spin on a topical, you know, almost. And I'm going to set aside things like the realities of it, like absorption and so forth. I have done cannabis and CBD skincare lines, so they're, you know, how you absorb the THC and and the um, entourage effect are going to be different in a lip balm than a digest something you digest or something something you smoke so we'll we'll go into that part of things but in a concept test you want to understand 
whether people like the concept before you go into to product development. So let's say um, you're driven, your hypothesis might be that people want a um, subtle, you know, way to um, put on, can't, you know, apply THC, smack their lips. Yeah, it's discreet. It's for, it's for who knows? Who knows? For people who want discreet cannabis application, assuming it actually gets you high. Who knows? But. Yeah. Or maybe it's, you know, maybe it's, you know, fortified with something and, and there you go. You know, it's just good for your lips. It feels good. Maybe it's like, uh, you know, it's like regenerative. It's like sustainable. Mm -hmm. We go yeah. with that. Organic. For dry, maybe super dry lips or your head. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But setting but, aside that reality, mm -hmm. we kind of look at, you know, after doing a, an analysis of what's out there and, you know, seeing to what degree there's a competitive landscape, because even though there's no cannabis lip balm per se, maybe made in Michigan, there, there might be things like topicals or pills and capsules or tinctures or other things that compete for that slice of the pie. So um, I would look at that and then test out the concept by doing what's called um, a census representative survey. So online panels, if you've, if you've ever seen those pop-ups where it says, you know, get, get paid to take surveys. These people aren't making a lot of money. You know, it's, they've got their full-time jobs, but they get paid a certain amount to take a survey. The reason that's important is because very little people have nothing better to do and ta than take surveys. So like, think about the last time you take a survey. I mean, heck, I'm in the industry and I don't even want to do a survey unless I feel really strongly about it. Like <laughs> absolutely love it or absolutely hate it. But most of us are in the middle. And in that case, it's not highly motivating. Um, you know, sometimes you'll see like be entered to, you know, win a $50 Amazon card statistically unlikely unless you have a very low participation in the survey right. they can't anticipate so i don't really recommend that you know will i do it to get a free entree at um panda express maybe you know like <laughs> there are certain things that that motivate people but these online panels it you accumulate some points that convert to money and you get paid so that way you know it's not people who are, you know, totally bored out of their minds and have nothing better to do. You know that there are people who have a logical reason for participating in it and have some quality control in place, but you don't know them, so, and you don't collect their data, it's anonymous, so you know that they're objective. Now, you know, obviously that we aren't, we don't live in a perfect world, you know, we quality control to make sure there isn't things like what's called redlining, where someone hits the same, you know, middle, yeah. middle, you know, quality control for that. There's quality control for things like what's called speeding, which means you're going so fast through a survey that you can't conceivably be reading. And then you get, that. <laughs> you get mischievous people like me that sometimes put in trick questions to make sure that they're reading, which <laughs> my online sample provider hates. So. Like for example, um, in order to catch people who 
to prove that they may or may not be reading, I may do something that like add in a question that says something like reality check. When you're smoking cannabis, do you A, inhale, B, exhale, you know, C, do both, D, do neither. And obviously, you know, if they answer that badly, <laughs> you know, if they can't answer that, I know I have a problem. <laughs> sometimes though people, you know, we all make mistakes, we're all human, so sometimes I'll put in another question like two-thirds of the way through, like, is this survey about canisters, canopies, or cannabis? If they now if they answer both wrong, I know that there's a quality <laughs> control issue and I throw them out of the survey. Um, but that's a little like I go to a little bit of an extreme because I'm I've been doing this over 20 years and I'm just really cynical <laughs> about <laughs> about um, my sources. And when I give someone data, I want it to be bulletproof. I don't yeah. you know. One of the problems Sounds like the good thing for your clients that you're going through the data. So maybe yeah. not too much for my vendors sometimes, but you know, I, I, I get, I think I'm a reasonable, but accountable. Yeah. I keep yeah. my vendors accountable. Yeah. Um, but that way, whether you're going for angel investing or investing from venture capital or what have you, you have data that you can rely on. And for your example of the, you know, cannabis lip balm, maybe you have a mission statement that says, says something like, cannabis lip balm is not just for dry lips, but it's for women and men alike who want to discreetly take in micro doses of THC and whatever. So you, let's say you have five different things in your mission statement or your value statement. We'll test that out in a survey and see what floats, floats to the top. Is it moisturizing your lips? Is it the discrete delivery of THC? Is it licking your lips equivalent of microdosing? Does it, um, does it provide, you know, what benefits, what attributes does it have? What benefits? does it offer? And then there also, in market research, there's, there's a theory called laddering. It's a technique. And so it's based on the belief that there are attributes of something, and those provide benefits. But those benefits tie into higher order values. So like ketchup. So um, it's viscous and red, you know, it's you know flavorful the benefits might be i get my six-year-old to eat protein but the values that drive that decision to purchase that ketchup would be family responsibility or maybe nostalgia i mean people tend to buy heinz but who has who's done a taste test like let's line up heinz text heinz ketchup uh hunts and generic and see who performs well. No one's gonna do that. You know, they're gonna buy it based on the branding and what it evokes. And ketchup, in the case of ketchup, sometimes it's nostalgia, which seems like an odd reason to buy ketchup. But if you force people to really look at why they bought buy Heinz, I can almost guarantee that it's not because 
they tasted them all and it tastes better. Same right. thing with cannabis. You know, you want to tie into what are you providing through this cannabis lip balm that's, um, that pings your values. And in the case, it might be being a good parent or being an experimenter or being, um, un you know, unconventional and a rebel. Um, or maybe it's that, you know, like you get that, you know you're doing something that's kind of naughty, but you can't, no one would notice. And, you know, it can tie into all sorts of abstract reasons for buying something. And then you figure out which of those is going to drive purchase. But obviously you have to, you know, you want to do something quantitative. So you have charts and tables and graphs. But I'm also, I'm in research what's called methodologically agnostic, which is basically a fancy way of saying I do qualitative research and I do quantitative research. So originally how I got into cannabis is I'm referred by um, focus facilities as a moderator of in-person focus groups. But I'm also referred when someone is not really sure what they need because they know that I'm not going to direct them to focus groups just because I do focus groups. I'm not going to direct them to a survey just because I do that because most people tend to be in one camp or another. So I'll figure out a way to do what's going to deliver the most return on investment for the client. And I find that often to be a multi-methodology approach. So for whether it be consumers, like I'll get some in-depth interviews or focus groups or self-administered ethnographies, which are really interesting. What's that? Augment. So a self-administered ethnography is when, let's say you want to understand how someone uh, uses the, would use lip balm in their own house because you want to extrapolate how they'd use cannabis and how they use lip balm. So you could actually recruit, not you, but through a professional, you recruit people who both consume THC and who use lip balm. And you find out by them doing the a self-administered with video capture project in their house, you can see their array of lip balms, which are colored and which are not colored and see how they apply them and then see what cannabis products they they use you know do do they use tinctures or topicals or edibles and what they like about each one and by combining those um by being able to see how they interact with the product in their own house you develop sort of a voice of the customer that adds a lot of flavor no pun intended, but um, it, it adds a different dimension to your market research so that when you're going in front of investors or VC or just for your own edification, you can see how consumers interact with your proposed product concept and what they like and don't like about it in their own words. And you also get the charts and tables. A lot. Now, back tw 20 years ago, I would have given you different advice because people really? actually wrote, yes, people, there's what's called in surveys open ends, okay. where people ask a question and you answer it. Yeah. 
And people used to write, not essays, but they'd write in complete sentences. Nowadays, people are used to typing in emojis and their grammar is horrible, as is their spelling. And so if you present an open-ended comment to a client, they tend to get, number one, they tend not to be very deep. Number two, they don't tend to be very impressive. And no matter how much you want to suspend judgment, when you're reading inarticulate, poor grammar, misspelling, unless you're appealing to a particular target audience, it's hard to really glean insights from that. Yeah. Whereas if you're speaking it, people tend to be very articulate. And then there are inexpensive ways to close caption. I use, I, I close caption it. So then you can see the voice of the customer and read the voice of the customer in a way that their open ends will not get you. That's really interesting. Really yeah. Interesting. And so that's, so that's, that's kind of a, a hybrid methodology. And I like to get really creative and think outside the box. So I don't tend to just use a survey or just do qualitative. I, I like to combine them because people process information in different ways. Sometimes people like that qualitative um, conversational tone. Yeah. But your, C, you know, your, your CFO might just, you know, show me the graphs and tables, bottom line it. So right. that way it accommodates the more marketing focused, maybe a little bit more nuanced people and the bottom line people. Yeah, it seems like um kind of like a more holistic, multi-dimensional mm -hmm. sort of approach to looking at things. Um, yeah. I think you're probably, you are a very good fit for the cannabis industry, I can imagine, because it sounds like you sort of customize and create your methodology based on what your client needs. And yeah. kind of flex to them and where they're at. And I know that so far we've been talking a little bit about what, you know, how we could use the data in the startup phase, but it sounds like this could also be very, very helpful for um, licensees that are fully operational, like for bud tenders and for education and for targeting your marketing, mm -hmm. maybe, you know, in a more impactful way. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I would Absolutely. love to kind of get into some of the data that you have sure. been looking at for Michigan and the United States. And I know when we talked on the phone, I don't know, maybe a month or so ago now, um, you had like just received some of the Michigan data and we're getting ready to crunch it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let me, um, let me uh, put on, oh, I've got to just um, make Could this you? a little smaller so that I can show, show you my screen. So let's see, how do I share my screen? Let me figure that out. I think it's like the bottom left button. Um, how do you, where do you get some of this data? And like, what? Well, I guess, what is some of the data that you're looking at? It's just, what are the other products that are out there? You're looking at like basic demographic data. You're looking at income data. You're looking at. Well, <laughs> I tend to look. I have some pretty strong opinions. Can you see my screen okay and full? Yeah, yeah this okay. looks great. Okay, so a lot of people collect demographic data, but I have, 
I have some issues with some demographic data. Like people tend to be really big on income. Got it. You know, what's their income? But when you think about it, I mean, I lived in Los Angeles. And when I lived in Los Angeles, what you could get, like let's say you made $100,000 a year household income. That sounds really great. But if you're in Los Angeles and you're a family of four, not so great. You go to suburban Iowa, you're a single guy making $100,000. You're just, you know, you're like a celebrity. You're a rock yeah, star. So Kind of all relative. Yeah, it's relative to cost of living. It's relative to how many people are contributing to the household income. And it's relative to how many people you're supporting on that income and in what lifestyle. So I tend to prefer to ask questions like, how much do you spend on cannabis in the average month? Because what you're looking at is not just discretionary income. You might have, you, you can have guys who are making, you know, $24,000 a year spending a huge percentage of it on pot. And on the other hand, someone making four times as much spending less on pot. So um, anyway, so that's my, my preaching about why I don't ask household income questions because they're going to be misused and misinterpreted. I like it. I think that makes a lot of sense. That really like resonates. So, yeah, I don't, I, you know, I look forward to the day where people stop asking questions that mislead clients into drawing conclusions that are flawed. And that's yeah. why. So, um, not, I, I'm a little bit of a renegade in that part you know most people still ask household income questions but that's why i don't recommend them but think it sounds like your thinking is a little bit that it's not so much your income that drives maybe your consumer habits but your values and then uh, yeah how much you know not just discretionary income but how much you're willing to spend on cannabis and yeah. that varies tremendously your money yeah. um and one thing that that i've become known for is I like to think outside the box. So most dispensaries and brands think only, and, and their marketing agencies think about the consumers and competing for a slice of the pie of those consumers. Now, if you think about where you can get what's called net new consumers, it's from the people who are on the fence. The people who, like in this case, nationally, about 44% of respondents are what's called canicurious. They've either tried it in the past or not, but they would consider it in the future with the right information or incentive to try it. And another thing that makes me a little bit different is I don't come at this research as a consumer. I actually maybe a couple of times a week I'll eat an edible, but my, my consumption is like really low. So I'm not coming at this from the point of view of I've been, you know, I've been consuming since high school and now I get to have this glorified career. I come across, you know, this data and come at it as a market researcher. And that's the way I've approached um, multicultural research and research about um, all sorts of topics where I'm not the target audience, but that enables me to be more objective because I don't have an agenda. 
or mm -hmm. preconceived notions, you know, um, about it. I'm just middle-aged mom who happens to be a professional and doing market research for a long time in the CPG space, and now it happens to be applicable to cannabis. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of the data itself, nationally, of the people that um, I surveyed, and uh, it was about 12,000 people nationally, 12% um, have never tried it, but they would consider it. And 32% have tried it in the past and would consider it. So you have a lot of people, a lot of whom look, you know, like regular, you know, regular old folks. Um, of, I mean, and I mean that of different ages who have tried it, but for whatever reason, it could be job, it could be that they had a bad experience, it could be stigma, it could be that they associate it like a lot of people my age do with like. Cheech and Chong and billows of smoke and not getting anything done, but they know that things have changed over the years, so they would consider trying it again with the right information yeah. impetus. Yeah. A lot of times that's related to medical information, you know, and dis, um, like uh, disputing negative stereotypes and assumptions about cannabis and what it can do for you. For instance, when I was growing up, the only thing I knew about cannabis was you were going to get the munchies and you were going to be tired and relaxed. And, you know, for most of us, our, you know, as adults, our lifestyle doesn't lend itself to that. I had no idea until I got into this that cannabis can be used for focus and productivity and other things that are actually work enhancing, not detracting. Mm -hmm. But most of the canicurists don't know that. So they require a lot of education and information about what it can do for them and how to use it effectively. Because they know, a lot of these canicurists, they like, they know that it can be used for cancer and pain and all those sort of things, but they don't see how it applies to them in a way that the benefits outweigh the, the risk and stigma that still exists for a lot of people. Um, so, but in Michigan, what's interesting is the that over half of the people that I surveyed fell into this, like, I'm not using it currently, but I would consider it in the future. Uh -huh. And that's enormous. Um, in Michigan, the consumer population yeah. or the self-classified is closer to 20%. Oh, and, wow. Okay. Uh, so it's much smaller than the, you know, 51% is double that. That's so even if those can of cures didn't all convert into consumers and they use less than current consumers, it's still an enormous opportunity from a financial and philosophical point of view to be able to educate and inform because for the for instance dispensaries have the most to gain from the syndicated research that I did because the first you know cart purchase likely to be bigger when they're trying something new but more importantly if they can provide their bud tenders um, information and education to be able to communicate with these 
new consumers so that they have a, a good experience, not that stereotypical, I ate an edible and I didn't feel it, so I ate another one and then I was really screwed up. And then they're turned mm -hmm. off from campus, period. Um, Are there particular like traits um, in that kind of curious audience? Like, uh, yeah, there are. Um, there are different things. So, um, the kind of curious, um, as I said, they're defined by that. But and they're they're up. This you know, the consumption for the <laughs> kind of curious or it, it increased during COVID. So, like, thirty three percent of that kind of curious, that forty whatever, are thinking much more about it during the pandemic, which for <laughs> obvious reasons. Um, and um, I'm just good for them. It's better than anything else to think about during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. So um, what I find for the can of curious is what they're interested in is an alternative to pharmaceuticals for relaxation and as a sleep aid, unless they're in New Jersey, because New Jersey is like the bastion of big pharma. So they that's why it's important to look at state by state information, because in a state like Maine, 75% of the can of curious are motivated by an alternative to pharmaceuticals, whereas in um, New Jersey, it's only 30% because everyone knows or is in something pharma related, so they don't have the, they A, I don't think um, disdain pharmaceuticals the way some people in other states do or just want to get off them. And also, it sometimes has to do with age. Um, yeah, that was going to be my next question. Yeah, like Mass in Massachusetts, the Canicurious are younger than the one, you know, than the Canicurious in New Jersey. And so, for instance, if you think about pharmaceuticals in the older population, besides chronic pain, you you might have things like diabetes and high blood pressure and um, high cholesterol, which don't correlate necessarily with being solved by cannabis, whereas if in other states, if the pharmaceuticals are for anxiety or depression or ADD or sleep, that's a more natural substitution. And so, you can get all that data, like farm, like that data is available or is that data you have to purchase? That's like what yeah. kind of pharmaceuticals are being written by state? That's really interesting. Yeah, it, it does vary a lot by, by state. Um, so I spoke at Elevate Northeast and I did a comparative between Massachusetts, um, Maine, and New Jersey. And it was just, it was really striking. Um, the New Jersey results in particular were puzzling to me. So I actually spoke to someone at the um, Cannabis Council, they're sort of like Chamber of Commerce of Cannabis in New Jersey, and he was the one that illuminated me to the fact that Big Pharma was so omnipresent there. And also, according to him, this Jersey Shore mentality is a real thing. So sometimes just the culture of a state can affect what they like and they don't like about their yeah. So it sounds like Michiganders are pretty um, open and curious. Yeah. And interested and, in getting off of pharmaceuticals. Yeah, it was really. And hungry for education and medical information. Yeah, they are. And they're motivated. The biggest, um, I'm just looking at the, the uh, male canicurious, the biggest driver of the canicurious in Michigan was 
chronic pain. Mm. And I see that for a, you know a lot of um, in a lot of states where the desire to get off pain medication and opioids and all that kind of stuff can be very compelling. Um, more so in Michigan, chronic pain was by far the biggest one, followed by uh, general emotional wellness and mental health. Um, and that's that's fairly typical across states, um, you know, other than sometimes you see in women, like, for instance, the canna-curious women, a third of them are interested in help with reproductive issues. So that could be anything from menstruation to menopause to what have you. It's a general category, um, but a lot of consumers and a lot of even the canna-curious are aware that it can help in those ways. So what do you do when um, I do mystery shopping? What do you, you know, what happens when a middle-aged woman presents themselves and you're paired with a 27-year-old male bud tender with a beanie? Do I want to talk to him about hot flashes? Probably not. So there's also <laughs> an onus upon um, upon you know brands and dispensaries to also figure out how to educate their bud tenders in a way that they can be approachable and answer questions that are posed to them that may be a little awkward because if a third of the can of curious women in New Jersey are interested in things related to reproductive issues then you probably want to have some some infrastructure in place to be able to accommodate that. Yeah, and, and I don't have the answers. I'm not a I'm not a marketer. I turn that over to other people, um, but it's a big driver of interest. Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting that. point. If yeah, it's an interesting point. Like if the big driver of interest, like you're saying, of people coming into a dispensary and considering buying cannabis is a medical or you know emotional mental kind of health issue mm -hmm. that's fairly personal so it is interesting in terms of how you approach that as uh, a retailer um it you know the second the second point on your slide here hungry for education and medical information mm -hmm. um, i guess is that distinct and different from the pharmaceutical or no i i think that a lot of and, and i fight if I knew a smooth way to do this, I'm trying to see if this is hyperlinked to some, no, if it's not hyperlinked, um, to, uh, let me. To kind of bridge that gap. Of um, I do have video of people, and, and that's how I know that this is an issue, of medical, and I say medical loosely because when I think medical, I think prescribed. And so, mm -hmm. I would like to see the industry thinking of it more in terms of therapeutic effects because like uh, general health and wellness and mental health are considered medical effects, but they're kind of, you know, like you don't have to be on Prozac to benefit from using or consuming cannabis to get mental health and you know emotional wellness effects. I mean, right. in in uh, in Michigan, 
for the, I'm looking at what the drivers of use are, 67% of the canicurious are, that's their primary non-medical non reason, relaxation. And then 55% sleep aid. Um, so, I mean, those tend to be the biggies in every state that are sort of, quote, non-medical reasons for consuming, whereas the they kind of overlap with the, med quote, medical reasons for consuming. Um, chronic pain, obviously, is distinct, but the general, emo general emotional wellness, mental health are big things. And are those medical or are those, like, relaxation and general emotional wellness, those kind of blur for me. Mm -hmm. um, so it warrants having a conversation about the kind of jargon that we use. But I think most can curious, based on what I see, come in for the potential medical effects, whether those be psychological or physiological, and then they discover the recreational advantages later. So if I could, you know, wave a magic wand and have a way to track the can of curious from before they consume to after they consume and over a period of years, my guess is that they're going to discover things like focus and productivity and sensory enhancement as potential benefits of consuming cannabis even if they lack awareness of those general, in general at this time. But in, and in Mich Michigan, this is always something that's different. 49% of the people who currently consume cannabis in Michigan, legally or illegally, are in it for the recreational high. But the curious, only 22% of the people in Michigan are interested in a recreational high. And so I hear this time and time again, the sort of not wanting a high, but wanting these benefits without what they perceive as a recreational high, because that's not a driver for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have, um, when you look at states like Colorado or California, mm -hmm. um, is, there, is, this like a, is this just a part of the cannabis journey? That like initially in a state where legalization happens and there's a maturing market, the consumers do come in, like you're saying, for medical reasons and then eventually stay for recreational and medical potentially? Um, I haven't tracked them enough. It's a hypothesis I have. And okay. I would love to, over time, do a tracking study or I talk to um a company about having what's called a community where I could see, you know, talk to people before they try cannabis, talk to them after, find out if they're going to stick with it, and then see how their education and usage evolves over time. But I haven't done that as yet. But I'm excited to find innovative ways to do so. Yeah, it's really interesting. Very and interesting. Um, I'm trying to think of other things where Michigan, I'm just looking at where other things in Michigan were really. Yeah, if there's any other data you wanted to share, yeah. Yeah, hold on, hold on a second. Let me, let me blow this up a little bit more. Okay, let me know, let me know if you can see. Does it still look really small to you? 
I just see the old um, presentation, the one you were showing. Okay, let me, let me go into that. Let me stop sharing for a second and get that reloaded up. Um, but in terms of both national and um, Michigan-based data, uh, a lot of what I focus on is developing insights that are going to drive product improvements, line extensions, or better marketing overall. And um, in the case of Michigan, I mean, the, the most striking difference in Michigan was just the sheer percentage of Canicurious. Because, for instance, why, why should it be so different than New Jersey? I would have thought that those would be relatively, you know, on par, for instance. But they definitely were, were not. Um, and, you know, why is that? I'd have to probably talk to people in New Jersey, you know, in New Jersey and Michigan to draw meaningful conclusions, but I could look at things like, you know, age and um, drivers of interest and drive hypotheses, but until I like dig down, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I can't say for sure what makes it different in Michigan. Is there anything that Michigan like consumers are interested in seeing? Like, do you have any data on like consumer preferences in terms of I don't know products? You know, I didn't do. Um, no, I'm open, that. I didn't do any open ends about with Michigan or, or with any in in particular because of the reasons that I mentioned and the kind of. Oh yeah, yeah. I just didn't. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, and because they weren't rec legal, um, I don't think I collected, did some self-administered video with them. But I'll show you so that you have a framework for what data looks like. Um, I'll show you, show you some, some of it. And I'll also try to put together something that's specific to Michigan. So if you're... Um, if you if people want to follow up and get some highlights of Michigan and they mention that they you know listen to your podcast I'll be able to share that with them I'm just That's trying awesome. to yeah I mean I, fi I figure you know that that could give them a sense of it um, one of the things that I'm really big on kind of like the income like I was talking about with the income question uh, is that I believe that when you're looking at data, you need to look in context. Now, can you see the whole screen or is it does it look super small? But I can see the whole screen. Okay. Just not um, the slide isn't, you know. The slide isn't big? Okay. Yeah. I, I apologize that I'm not more adept with the um, how to no share um, in it. Let's see. Oh, I just pulled up something wrong. No problem. Okay. Um, well, all the more reason that I, I know that I did it once. I figured out how to share this <laughs> adeptness, but um, I guess I'm 
not having as much luck uh, this time. Well, maybe you can just walk us through the highlights even. We sure. don't, you know, we can just go through quick highlights and then mm -hmm. anything you wanted to hit on. Um, so for the Michigan data, when you're looking at this mental health and wellness, um, you can, well, I would say you can see, but I know that it's probably hard to see, um, the difference, like each of these rectangles is, uh, I mean, uh, bars, what, what's called a vertical bar chart, represents a different type of consumer. So when you're, you know, when you're looking at the data, you can see, and you see this big red, um, this, this top red one, yeah. what that is, illustrates is that chronic pain is the the primary driver for the canicurious men as well as canicurious women. And this is for Michigan specifically? For Michigan. Okay. For Michigan specifically. Got it. So that's now, the primary driver. Got it. Yeah. So understanding and communicating with people in Michigan to understand, I mean, to understand how to get these net new consumers, but stay within the lines because you, there, are, there are rules, and I don't know what they are specific to Michigan, but they're on efficacy claims. So how do you educate uh, a potential consumer without making efficacy claims? You almost have to educate them about the category and not make promises about the brand themselves. Mm -hmm. and, um, and because I don't know what the Michigan rules are, I, you know, I can't totally say for sure how to do that, but expanding your market so that, for instance, they aren't all focused on ads like this, but they're focused on people who look like you and me. Uh, you know, she's probably not going into your dispensary because of her chronic pain issues. <laughs> That's my stereotype. I could be totally wrong. I've been wrong before, but just based on my over 20 years of experience, that's my guess. Um, that she looks more like a recreational user to you. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm feeling pretty confident. <laughs> so what? What else is there about Michigan? What are like? Yeah. Another interesting thing about Michigan is that they're not interested in smoke smoking flour. Like. Okay. Um, like I look at the data in Michigan, gosh, I feel like such a tech idiot for not being able to figure out how to make this. Well, it's okay. You can just talk, even just tell, even that. Just so what are people interested in? If they're not interested in flour, what are they interested in? Yeah, edibles is number one by okay. far. Um, so that's at 66%. So what that means is that two-thirds of the people in Michigan who are planning on learning about cannabis and one day using it, if they one day use it, two out of three of them are going to try edibles. Okay. So that's now, two thirds of that 51% that can a curious yeah. audience yeah, is interested in edibles. That's, and that's enormous. The second mm -hmm. most popular is topical and salves. Mm. And why that's interesting is to give you context, in Michigan, 32%, so one in three can curious are interested in topicals and salves. But half of that, only 15% of consumers, actually use topical themselves with THC. 
So for brands who provide, and same thing with pills or capsules, 30% of the can of curious are interested, only 13% of actual consumers use pills and capsules. Well, that's like opportunity yeah, for a whole new category. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. for the topical, uh, topical lotions themselves, pills and capsules have a lot to gain by, instead of just competing for that piece of the pie of consumers, which is already at, you know, 13 to 15%, and they're like struggling with it, it's in their best interest to look outside and think about, well, how can I bring in these net new consumers because they're not going to smoke flour? Only 30% of Michigan can of curious are interested in smoking flour, but of those currently in Michigan, 68% of the current consumers use flour. Wow. So again, a huge gap between what consumers want and use and what the can of curious want and use. And there's way more of the can of curious, so it's kind of a no thinker to me to redirect some of your marketing dollar and strategy to going after, you know, to going after them basically. Yeah. And um, so What's those the are age breakdown like between the consumer and then the can of curious group. Uh, that's a really good and question. the gender breakdown, age and gender. Gender can be a little bit skewed by on the basis of uh, who answered the surveys. But in terms of age, usually, and I'm going to check if this is the case in, um, in uh, Michigan. So for instance, in Michigan, the main consumers of cannabis are 25 to 44, like the vast majority like uh, 55% got it the, um, are you know are basically of um, that consumer port that consumer, consumer that 20% of Michiganders are 25 to 44 and in the non consumer in the can of curious it's closer to 36% but when you go into the older markets like over um, 55 in Michigan, it's 25% of the can of curious are over 55, but only 15% of the consumers are over 55. So a significantly higher percentage of that older population is interested not, you know, in chronic pain and, and other things as a reason to try cannabis. Now that doesn't mean, I mean, there's still more of the 25 to 44. It's just that the number of can of curious outpace or and are larger than the current consumer category of that um, in that older uh, population. Got it. So it's more of an untapped market. Mm -hmm. yep. Got it. Very so, interesting. Very, very yeah. interesting. Is there and anything I'm, else? Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I just, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of what I'm looking for other things that kind of are standouts about Michigan, I know. Yeah, is there any like, do you ever look at trends like um, geographically? Yes, you know, and I notice things like, like so, yeah, 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 the differences, especially, you know, like I've mentioned, New Jersey's. Right? Well, I guess even in Michigan, like, do you ever look at like state dif um, just well, geographical differences in a state like Detroit versus Grand Rapids? 
Oh, within a state, I did not get that granular. I can, okay. I do custom studies for everything of all, you know of all things. Got I do it. makes sense. <laughs> charter school, you know, charter schools, and people like you do cannabis and you do charter schools and beef jerky, like it's just a real <laughs> amalgamation of things. But just like I, I never thought I'd say these in the same sentence, but just like with charter schools, if you're a dispensary and you're trying to figure out where your brand of dispensaries is going to be most resonant you'd pick like like i just did something for a charter school that happens to be expanding to michigan and so we picked three different geographies and did this survey within 10 miles of that zip code and determined where does that charter school philosophy best resonate so they know where to locate well, the same could be done for dispensaries. You figure out, you know, if you're a high-end dispensary, if you're a value dispensary, uh, or whatever your positioning is, which location is going to give you the most bang for your buck or anticipate a bang for your buck. So, but I haven't done it yet. But if I do, you'll be the first one, one to know. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'd love that. I mean, all this is, is really great. I really appreciate you walking us through the data and just taking the time. And um, what what's what's on the agenda for you in 2021 and for Fortis Consulting? Um, well, I, I co-founded um, a specialty business called Canicurious Insights, which you can find at canicuriousinsights.com. Um, and uh, so I did this huge syndicated study and so I have the national report and then I have reports for like 14 states in the District of Columbia but what I really love doing and what's on the agenda is understanding what it takes to get someone kind of curious the the right call to action to try cannabis you know, and, and again, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying this from the point of view of that I think cannabis is right for everyone. I just think people should be able to make an informed decision about whether it works for them or not. So it's a, it's a philosophical issue, but not my personal agenda to get people to at least know what the benefits are mm -hmm. and figure out what's going to be the call to action. You know, how are, how are brands and dispensaries going to appeal to the curious person who wants to deal with their chronic pain but is up against their preconceived notions about cannabis and what it may or may not do to them. That's the billion dollar question right there, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah. So that's, that's what I plan on doing. That's mm -hmm. that's my goal is to understand the can of curious journey to being consumers and how they're the drivers of their interest and their purchase patterns change over time. It's fascinating. Uh, I love it. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything, um, I guess maybe website, your website in addition to, can you repeat the website of the study that you have as well? Sure. And but, any other place people can find you? Um, well, the best place to find me is on LinkedIn because I'm the only Laura Fortis on LinkedIn. Okay. And then from that you can find um, you can find Canna Curious specific information is at cannacuriousinsights.com. And then anytime you need custom work or you find out, you know, you want to make a beef jerky laced with THC or whatever your 
whatever your dream is, then you'd go contact me either through LinkedIn or through at FordisConsulting.com and I'm at Lara, L-A-R-A, at FordisConsulting.com and we can discuss kind of creative outside the box ways of figuring out whether it's cannabis lip balm or THC laced beef jerky or whatever it is whether it's going to be viable and if so how to make it most appealing and generate the most revenue and have the best chance of succeeding awesome i really appreciate your time this is really fascinating oh I'm, it was fun i ne i thought like how are we going to fill an hour and now i just realized we've gone over time but <laughs> um it was really fun i am you know my inner nerd gets very passionate about market research oh. and, that's great. Ed, especially with that, you know, who can complain when you're, you know, doing focus groups and watching, you know, hearing about people and their THC laced truffles, you know, like it's a pretty good gig as far as I'm concerned. And yeah. Being able to share it with people. Yeah. You have a lot to be excited and passionate about. So, yeah, I do. Thank you so much, Ashley. This was really a fun way to spend a Friday night. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate your time. And um, I look forward to seeing all that you get up to.